Hello, and welcome back to the Global Bears podcast. If you don't know who we are, we are an international relations podcast here on the Berkeley campus, bringing you the latest news in international politics. To keep up with our latest news, follow us on Instagram at IRC of Berkeley. My name is Ben, and with me here today we have... Samantha. Now, we know this issue is a very sensitive topic for a lot of people, and we can definitely see that with protests and um, shows of support for both sides of the conflict everywhere around the world. We see Israeli and Palestinian flags going up everywhere. And we also see it on our own campus here in Berkeley. And we just want to make sure that all of our listeners know that our hearts go out to all of you, um, no matter what side you're on or what kind of feelings that you might have, whether you know people that are currently in the region, whether you have family members, friends, we just want to make sure that you all know that our hearts go out to you. We support you. And um, everything that we say within this episode is from a completely objective standpoint We are relying on facts only, and we are not taking any sort of stance on the issue. Our goal is to discuss this current issue as, again, objectively as possible and just provide factual information to our listeners. Okay, so first, I think it would be a good idea to get some historical context between both this current conflict and the broader Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which has been going on for 70 odd years now. So back before any of this began, for given definition of began, the territory that is today Israel and Palestine, the lands between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, were under the control of the Ottoman Empire, a Turkish Islamic empire. The population at that time was mostly Muslim, but with a substantial population of Christians, Palestinian Christians, as well as Jews. Jews at this time were mostly Jews who had been in the Middle East or had migrated from Spain in the 1500s with some more recent settlers from Europe, but really not many at the turn of the 20th century. During the 19th century, Jews had gained greater economic authority and greater economic power and to an extent more civil rights, but not as much. Certain events like the very famous Dreyfus Affair or certain other anti-Semitic scandals caused certain Jews, in particular Theodore Herzl, to become Zionists and to become convinced that Jews needed to create their own state. The British government took up this cause during World War I, and after briefly considering resettling all the Jews in Uganda, of all places, that's Uganda and Africa, they issued the Balfour Declaration during World War I, saying that the British government would support the relocation or movement of any Jews to the territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire fought against the Western Allies and lost, lost so badly it ceased to exist. Part of the core part of its territory in Turkey was reconstituted, and Turkey, but the rest of its territories were either given nominal independence under the domination of Western powers or were annexed outright or placed under mandates, which is the same thing as being a colony. The territory between the Jordan and the Mediterranean became the British Mandate of Palestine. And the British supported to an extent, to an extent, Jewish, and again, this is at this time overwhelmingly European Jewish settlement into the territory. Most of the Middle Eastern Jews stayed where they were, and the Sephardic Jews stayed positioned around the Mediterranean. 
during this time, conflict began to happen with more regularity between Palestinians and Jews. There had already been some during the Ottoman period. It was never perfect, but it had generally been peaceful. Muslims had a generally higher status, but Christians and Jews had civil rights, economic rights. Things were generally peaceful. During the Mandate period, it became more conflictual. There's at least some massacres committed by Palestinians against Jews moving into the territory. There are reports of Jewish settlers attacking Palestinians. The British, especially as Nazis began to take power in Germany, the British began to restrict Jewish immigration into Palestine, which led to conflict between armed Jewish militias and the British. At this time, actually, there's more fighting going on between the British and the Jewish militias than there was between the Jews and the Palestinians. After World War II, however, when the extent of the Holocaust became known, or at least became so widely known that the governments couldn't <laughs> argue against it, the British allowed in an enormous increase in Jewish migration into Palestine. Initially, they refused, which led to things like Jewish guerrillas blowing up and killing the head of the British mandate. But eventually, they agreed to a much larger increase in migration, a massive, massive wave in the three years between 1945 and 1948. Palestinians, and at this point, more politically prominently, the Arab states surrounding Israel didn't like this influx into the state. Conflicts rapidly increased between both Israeli and Palestinian militias and Israeli militias and neighboring Arab states, which came to a head in the first Israeli-Palestinian war. If you're an Israeli, this is the Israeli War for Independence. If you're a Palestinian, it's the Nakba, the catastrophe. Air Palestinian militias, along with the armies of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, and support from several other Arab states, fought against Israel in a long, by the standards of the region, long conflict, which ended with Israel's almost complete success. Israel wound up with all of the former mandate territory, except for the modern-day West Bank, which is a large section of territory on the West Bank of the Jordan River, as which also included about half of Jerusalem, and a long strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea with a small border on the end towards Egypt. This is called the Gaza Strip. Now, the West Bank, including that section of Jerusalem, was directly annexed outright into the kingdom of Jordan. Just directly, no ifs, ands, or buts, every Palestinian living there became a Jordanian citizen. Egypt turned the Gaza Strip, right next to it, into a protectorate, which was effectively under complete Egyptian control. Again, most of the fighting in the First War of Independence was between the Arab states and the Israelis. At this time, large numbers of Palestinians were driven off of their homes in the territory that Israel now controlled outright. This is why the Nakba is called the Nakba. This is why you have the origins of the refugee camps currently operating inside Jordanian and other Arab state territory. In the wake of the first Israeli-Palestinian war, the Israeli War of Independence, the Nakba, a jolt of anti-Semitism went through the remaining Arab states and through the Muslim world more generally. There were ancient communities of Jews throughout the Muslim world. I mean, truly thousands of years old, the Roman Empire or before communities, as well as large communities of Sephardim, who were Jews from Spain, who had been 
forced out by Ferdinand and Isabella and forced to settle across the Mediterranean. So very, very, very large communities of Jews, together about as large as the European Ashkenazim. These Jews, in the wake of the First War of Independence, began a period of rapid emigration, making Aliyah in the terms of Israel to Israel. The exact cause of this is disputed exactly. Everyone agrees that it was a combination of greater economic opportunity and anti-Semitism. Israel asserts that they were predominantly forced out by anti-Semitism and that the economic factors were minimal. The Arab states claim that they just moved because of economic factors and that the acts of anti-Semitism were minimal and isolated incidents. There are demonstrated evidence, there is demonstrated evidence of pogroms, of organized mass killings and mass persecution of Jews in the wake of the first Israeli war of independence in states across the Islamic world, however. There was another war fought in the 50s, the second Israeli-Palestinian war. In the West, we tend to call it the Sinai crisis, where France, Britain, and then Israel tried to intervene and seize the Suez Canal. I'm sorry, it's called the Suez Crisis. Tried to seize the Suez Canal away from Egypt, which had been trying to nationalize it. Ultimately, however, the United States and the Soviet Union came together to criticize the movement to take over, and the Israelis had to flee back. No territory changed hands. Then comes the Six-Day War in 1967. Israel invaded several neighboring Arab states. Again, at this time, most of the conflict is between Israel and Arab nations claiming that it was invading in order to preempt a preemptive invasion, in order to preempt an Arab invasion of Israel. There probably was an Arab invasion of Israel being planned, but Israel attacked first. The, it's called the Six-Day War because it only took six days. Israeli Air Force famously took down almost all of the neighboring air forces before they got a chance to get off the ground, and they occupied not just the Gaza Strip, not just East Jerusalem, not just the West Bank, but also the entire Sinai Peninsula, a massive chunk of the bit of Egypt that's in Asia, which is actually several times larger than Israel itself, and the Golan Heights, which was a territory of Syria, which had never at any point been part of the mandate. It had been under French control back when this was all still colonized territory, or European colonized territory, had never been part of the mandate. The citizens that they acquired, or the citizens that Israel now had control over, were not made Israeli citizens, were not given ID cards. In practice, they had economic work permits, but they were not allowed to, say, vote in any new elections. The West Bank and the Gaza Strip were placed under full, absolute Israeli military government. The next war that goes on is the Yom Kippur War in 1973. This time, the Arab states are the ones who lead the invasion of Israel. In other words, instead of Israel invading them, it's the Arab states invading Israel. This one takes significantly longer than the Six-Day War. Israel eventually wins. It pushes back the Arab states to the borders beforehand, so it defeats the invasion. But it was a much closer affair, and it convinced Israeli politicians that some change in policy was needed. This led along with Egypt realizing it was never going to be able to fully defeat Israel militarily, to the recognition of Israel by Egypt. Since then, the two countries have been not allies, but have had a understanding with each other, which is very, very important to understanding the current conflict in and around Gaza. And the other main thread that needs to be mentioned here is 
are the settlements, which aren't as important in Gaza specifically, but which are incredibly important to understanding the history of the West Bank. At this time, almost all Jews who were living inside the Palestinian territories, that is to say Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank, in 1973, almost all Jews living there were living inside East Jerusalem, where they still constituted a minority, but a substantial, large minority. At this time, however, settlement construction begins to take place, and it really, really takes off in the 80s. Israel constructs enormous numbers of settlements. They build enough in the Golan Heights to equal the local population there. They get a larger and larger share of East Jerusalem. They launch some settlements into Gaza, but really the bulk of settlement building progress happens or settlement building proceeds in the West Bank. And it continues to run for years and years and years. These settlements are considered illegal by international law, as stated by the UN, and there's evidence that the Israeli military provided under-the-table support to the construction of the settlements. The next enormously significant event, but besides a war in Lebanon, which ultimately ended in stalemate and Lebanon's government collapsing, and the creation of Hezbollah, a Iran-aligned, very much anti-Israel militia in southern Lebanon, the next significant event are the Oslo Accords, which are a series of agreements brokered by Bill Clinton between the Palestinians and the Israeli government that was meant to lead to eternal peace for the region. Now, the leader of the Israeli delegation was the prime minister of Israel. The leader of the Palestinian delegation was Yasser Arafat, another incredibly important person in this. Arafat was the leader of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was, I believe, recognized in the United States as a terrorist organization, which made the whole negotiation process quite difficult. He was effectively the, he was the most popular politician or political leader inside the Palestinian territories by a wide margin. His own faction within the PLO, the PLO was theoretically supposed to be a branch of many different groups to get together, but the by far leading dominant faction was called the Fatah Party. The Fatah Party was a secular socialist Palestinian liberation organization. That secular and socialist parts of it are very, very important. The first intifada, which had coincided with the war in Lebanon, which was a series of attacks carried out by Palestinians against Israel, both military and civilian Israelis and Westerners across the world, was carried out by the PLO. So this is a not a beloved figure. But in the Oslo Accords, Israel and Arafat sit down and come up with a roadmap for peace. Actually, the roadmap for peace is technically something later, but they come up with a possible way to create peace. Under the terms of the Oslo Accords, Israel would have to begin evacuating, dismantling, and definitely no longer supporting the creation of new settlements anywhere, anywhere. And then Gaza would come under immediate and direct authority of a new organization called the Palestinian Authority to be headed by Arafat, but which is meant to be democratic and have elections. More on that later. And the West Bank would be split into three areas. Area A is under complete and total Palestinian Authority control. No ifs, ands, or buts. Area B is limited. Area B has civilian control of the Palestinians, but the Israelis have military and, in practice, police control. Area C is under absolute Israeli civilian and military control. Over time, the idea was that as the settlements decreased or became accommodated or 
organized with their neighbors, Area B and then ultimately Area C would be incorporated into a new Palestinian state, which would include all of the West Bank and all of Gaza. Now, what's important to note here is the exact constitution of the areas. The overwhelming majority of the population was in areas A and B. Those are the areas where Palestinian civil control exists. But the geographic size of areas A and B is very small. Area A tends to consist of the most intensely developed urban areas in the West Bank, a series of dots of high population. Area B are the suburbs surrounding it. Area C is all of the land in between. What this means is that the Palestinian quote-unquote state consists of a a, – I think the phrase that's used is archipelago of areas of Palestinian control separated by areas where the Israeli military has military and police authority, which means it can set up checkpoints, then surrounded by this massive ocean of absolute Israeli control. In Area C, the area where Israel has control, the very not particularly densely populated territory – Israeli settlers make up a majority of the population with a significant Palestinian minority. There are almost no Jews living in areas A and B under Palestinian control. The Oslo Accords were in 1994. It took a few years for them to get implemented. But even so, within a couple of years, it became clear that it wasn't going to work out particularly well. Israel refused to allow the limitation of any new settlement construction or even migration into new settlements or even construction of additional settlements, which meant that it became increasingly unlikely that Area C would ever um, become part of Palestine. At the same time, Fatah, his leading party, which was the de facto one-party ruling state of Palestine— became increasingly accused of corruption, of mismanagement, both of foreign aid and of local tax revenue. And in response to this, and in response to a feeling that Fatah had compromised itself by negotiating with Israel, you see the rise of a new mm, movement, Hamas. Hamas originally began as a Islamic movement rather than an explicit political party or military organization. They built schools, organized mosques, and said that they would forever refuse to recognize Israel and drive the Jews back into the sea and across to Europe. As the first the 80s and the first intifada, and then the 90s and early 2000s and Fatah's seeming corruption wore on, Hamas's power, authority, and most importantly, organization grew and grew and grew. It began to arm itself became loosely affiliated with Hezbollah and more distantly with Iran, both very heavily armed organizations or states. In the 2006 elections in the Palestinian Authority, Hamas won an outright majority, pushing Fatah onto the back benches, which meant, theoretically, that Hamas should form the new government in the Palestinian Authority. The Fatah party was originally possibly accepting of this, but in practice, I doubt that they ever really were okay with it. And Israel, the United States, and importantly, Egypt, all of whom recognized Hamas as a terrorist organization, were very much not okay with it. In the early 2000s, Fatah had initiated, or the Palestinians, with covert support from Fatah, who was worried about their position, had initiated the second intifada, period similar to the first intifada with rocket attacks, suicide bombings, and other 
assaults by Palestinians onto Israeli military and civilians, which was coincided with increasing Israeli incursions into Palestine. At this time, slightly before the Intifada, you had the Roadmap for Peace, which is a loose stab at creating a peaceful organization, which involved Israel evacuating all settlements from Gaza and four settlements from the West Bank. But this didn't go anywhere. The settlements that were withdrawn in the West Bank, at least, were minimal, didn't at all change the trend in increasing Jewish population, and didn't change anything. In the wake of the Second Intifada, Hamas was viewed as being as bad as al-Qaeda in Israel and the United States and Egypt. They just simply would not accept it. Fatah began to loosely collaborate with Israel in arresting and seizing Hamas members of parliament. This led to an armed conflict between Hamas and Fatah, which wound up with Fatah remaining in control of the West Bank, although with certain Hamas operatives active, and Hamas using full absolute power inside the Gaza Strip. This breakdown has remained today. There have been no new elections in either group since. Hamas doesn't want any elections at all, and Fatah keeps claiming they're going to have elections and then keeps postponing them indefinitely. Fatah is in control of those parts of the West Bank where it has civilian control, which is not much of it, but high population, and Hamas has complete authority in the West Bank. The West Bank Sorry, Hamas has complete control of the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is a very small territory, very compact. It has less people than the West Bank, but on a drastically smaller bit of territory. It's still 2 million people. It's not remotely capable of being self-sufficient agriculturally. And its industrial base wasn't enormous. In the wake of Hamas taking it over, Israel and Egypt, with backing and support from the United States, agreed on an absolute blockade of the Gaza Strip. In the mid-2000s or late 2000s, there was a famous flotilla which sailed in and got some aid in, which involved fighting between the Israeli Navy and the flotilla. After this, Israel somewhat relaxed the terms of the blockade, but not by much. The blockade that exists on Hamas, for instance, in the West Bank, or rather the blockade that exists on Hamas in the Gaza Strip and on the Gaza Strip more generally, is much tighter, much more intense than, say, the U.S. embargo on Cuba. Since Hamas has taken over the Gaza Strip, there have been a number, a number of conflicts, of wars fought between the Israelis on the one side and Hamas on the other. The typical weapons and strategies that Hamas uses are suicide bombings and fairly frequent missile attacks going into Israel, both of which are targeted almost exclusively at civilians. Israel retaliates typically with airstrikes, but at least in 2014 and occasionally more frequently, but not often, mostly in 2014, with ground forces fighting inside the Gaza Strip. Israel claims it's attacking military targets exclusively, but in practice, most of the deaths from Israeli airstrikes tend to be Palestinian civilians. Not tend to be, are overwhelmingly Palestinian civilians. Each of the major conflicts between Hamas and Israel. So in 2014, in 2021, and the various other ones had coincided with a period of increasing tension between Israel and Hamas. Regarding the current issue in Israel and the Gaza Strip, the 
conflict originally broke out on October 7th, very early in the morning. And this was interesting because typically issues between these two groups or just in the region in general have been prefaced with tensions, like visible tensions that people in the region and around the world can see. So whether that's um, any sort of communication between the countries or just visible getting together of um, militant groups or armies or movement of troops, it's always been kind of um, prefaced with this sort of tension and it's always kind of generally rised until you have an ultimate breakout of violence. This current conflict was not at all like that. This was very surprising for Israel. It was very out of the blue, which some people might kind of say is why Israel seemed to be not prepared. Um, and so that's some that's a first thing that's very surprising about the situation. The second thing that's very surprising about the situation is how immediately violent this conflict was compared to other issues between Israel and Hamas. This, I think it's fair to say that this episode of violence here that's currently going on is the most violent episode that we've seen to date. And I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the last outbreak of violence was in 2014. I think there have been lots of outbreaks and fighting in between now and 2014, but 2014 is the last outbreak on this scale. Yeah. Yeah. So the last outbreak on this kind of very violent scale was in 2014. Um, So on October 7th, I believe it was 6.30 a.m. is when Hamas started launching rockets into Israeli territory. Um, And then an hour later was when they started to kind of, um, and by they I'm speaking of um, Hamas, they started to come into Israeli territory and kind of proceed with ground attacks. And a lot of people were very surprised that they were able to get through the border that separates the Gaza Strip from Israel so easily. Um, But something that should be pointed out is that this border between Israel and the Gaza Strip is not like it's a really big concrete wall that's 10 feet high and surrounded by constant armed soldiers. It's nothing like that. It's a chain link fence with some barbed wire on top and security cameras. So I think to put kind of that into perspective is really important. So the people that are a part of Hamas, whether you want to call them militants, soldiers, whatever term that you might want to use for them. Um, For the sake of this episode, I'm just going to use the term 
I think the best term to use here is maybe militants. Yeah. Um, or fighters. Fighters. Fighters is a better word there. Actually, it was a word I was looking for, but could not quite pull. Um, I would say that the Hamas fighters literally took a tractor like with a big scoop and just drove right through the fence. And another point to point out is that like there are patrols of the border, but it's kind of similar to the border between the U.S. and Mexico. There's not always people patrol. There's not people that are just sitting there just armed and waiting. They're just people that drive by in trucks or vehicles every so often kind of just patrolling, watching out for any potential threats to the border. So that's another thing to point out. But back to the current situation, there were literally Hamas fighters that just kind of drove through this fence into Israeli territory. So putting that all into perspective is something that I think is really important. From there, there were multiple other attacks. Um, Rockets continued to be launched. I believe that around 11.30 a.m. is when Israel started to kind of respond to the attacks. They started to get their forces all organized and um, their first method of responding back was um, through their air force. And then I'm not exactly quite sure the exact timing of when they sent in foot soldiers. Um, but I think, I believe it was within the last couple of days. I don't believe it was on the first day. Well, they've started fighting the Hamas fighters almost immediately with soldiers. It's just that um, it took a while for them to get enough. And I don't think they've entered the Gaza Strip yet. I do believe that they are prepping to enter the Gaza Strip, yes. um, but they have not. And, and that's what I meant. They have not started a ground invasion into the Gaza Strip. They were definitely, you know, kind of facing these Hamas fighters head on within their own territory. Yes. Um, as far as other more significant attacks or more um, largely covered Attacks. Um, there was attack on an Israeli music festival that was quite significant. Um, and the situation there is that there were Hamas fighters that kind of came in and started open firing on a crowd of people. And there were many different kinds of people there. It wasn't just um, Israelis. There were, it wasn't just, they weren't just targeting Israelis. There were a lot of different kinds of people from different places. I believe there were Americans there. It was an international festival. Something like half the people there weren't Israelis. Yeah. yeah. And there have been other attacks since. Um, in the days since, Hamas has continued to fire rockets into Israeli territory at a greater rate than they have since, again, 2014. And Israel has drastically increased. I mean, drastically increased its rate of airstrikes. I think the total number of deaths in 2014, which is, again, the closest analog to this, I think the generally accepted number was 2,200, 2,300. I think it's hard to tell. There's so many different sources, which we found when we were researching this. But 
between the Israelis and the Palestinians, it looks like we're well over that number and this conflict isn't anywhere near resolving. And it's very hard to kind of really get an accurate number, especially when you're currently undergoing conflict. Some people would want to use the term war to describe the situation. Some people are kind of refraining from that. That's something we talk about later on. But it's important to note here that it's really hard to get an accurate count on the amount of people that have been kidnapped, injured, killed on either side and as a whole. Yeah. Um, So we kind of want to leave it to just a very brief overview of the current situation and move on to a very interesting case of the West Bank. And this is such an interesting case because the West Bank is divided pretty much between Israelis and Palestinians. Yes, although the word divided, it gives you the wrong impression of it. Divided shared. implies, oh, not quite. Divided or shared implies that you have like this zone, which is the Israelis, and this zone, is which is Palestinians. And that is technically true. You have zone A, which is full Palestinian control, zone B, which is Palestinian civil Israeli military control, and then zone C, which is Israeli complete control. In practice... Israel is able to control, say, the construction of new water mains, sewage mains. They control whether a Palestinian citizen is allowed to travel from their work to their job. So, yeah, divided is true, yes, but it's not like there's a large block of territory that's just under Palestinian authority. This is a place where Israeli and Palestinian authority and the Israeli government and Palestinians are constantly coming into contact even if there's an actually enormous degree of separation between Israeli settlers and Palestinians. And I'm very interested to hear why you think that the West Bank is so interesting in this time of conflict. Because I know you had some, some thoughts. It's under Fatah which is a secular non-Islamist organization which has had a very strained very dysfunctional working relationship with Israel since the Oslo Accords, but really since about 2008 when they became semi-allies in the fighting against Hamas. Fatah has had an ambiguous attitude towards Hamas. On the one hand, they're by far their greatest rivals for power inside the territory of Palestine. I mean, they already took control of the Gaza Strip. And Hamas is a significant movement inside the territory of the West Bank. And they're a military rival. And the Palestinian Authority's cooperation with Israel, which again is completely necessary because they rely on Israeli tacit support in order to operate their proto-state. Israel is so vehemently anti-Hamas that Fatah can't help but also be that way. So they can't be supportive. But at the same time, they can't ever actively condemn Hamas, because support for well, support for Hamas isn't exactly accurate, but most Palestinians want to recognize Israel and don't like the fact that Hamas is continually refusing to do that and has taken this hardcore stance. However, significant numbers of Palestinians view Hamas's actions against Israel with an attitude of, well, at least someone is doing something, if that makes sense. Fatah is widely perceived as being corrupt, definitely, but also being compromised to an extent, and Hamas isn't. So the PEA, governed by Fatah, is in this awkward position 
where it can't ever directly condemn Hamas, but it definitely can't join side, can't become supportive of it. So you can see that like when Fatah was um, issued statement originally talking about it, they first version of it contained some harsh language critical of Hamas. And then within about two hours, it was immediately taken off. They're stuck in this limbo where they can't actively support it, even though in many ways Hamas is more popular than Fatah in the West Bank, even if Hamas's beliefs aren't. Since the fighting and putting Fatah aside, there have been numerous reports of attacks on Palestinian citizens by the Israeli settlers throughout the West Bank. I think the figure for number of deaths I'd heard was 20. That was as of yesterday. It could be higher today. Again, the numbers for this are very, very hard to find. It should be noted, the Israeli politician in charge of policing and security inside Israel itself and in the Israeli-controlled parts of the West Bank is a man named Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is, to put it mildly, controversial. He's a former Kahanist, which is a Israeli hyper-nationalistic movement, which has been designated a terrorist group by Israel and the United States alike. Until relatively recently, he had a portrait of the Israeli man who committed the Cave of the Patriarchs massacre, who killed dozens of Muslim worshippers at a holy site. He had a portrait of this man hanging on his wall. He's since taken it down. He has somewhat softened his rhetoric. Emphasis here goes on somewhat, but this is an intensely partisan figure, and this is a person who's in charge of security. So throughout the West Bank, throughout the areas populated by Palestinians, outside of the Gaza Strip itself— the attack has had enormous ripple effects. These are definitely discrete areas, and the populations, both Palestinian and not, have discrete concerns in many ways. But I think there's a conception of the conflict which views their area between the Mediterranean and the Jordan as really only being one continuum of territory with a series of authorities exercising different levels of power in different stretches. I think that's being shown to be true here. Hamas's attack is having enormous effects in areas Hamas isn't even in control of. And the authority there, Fatah, doesn't really know how to respond. Not that Fatah ever knows how to respond to anything properly, but really is stuck. Yeah. And as far as not just the West Bank, but the war itself, if you want to use that term again, I would probably stick more with the term conflict since everything is so unclear but where do we think this is going i think it's going towards an israeli invasion of gaza i would agree with you i have read a lot of things that are very that are coming out from the israeli government saying we're not going to stop until Hamas is dismembered, till they're taken down, till they don't exist anymore. It's very clear that this is how the Israeli government wants to proceed. And they can. They're backed by the U.S. And the U.S. has sent, I believe, soldiers in now to Israel. They're very few. There's not a lot. They're very small But it's a gesture of support. But yes, it is a gesture of support along with the intimidation 
missions that they've been flying over Gaza as well with very, very high tech. Yeah. I think we're going towards an invasion of Gaza, but whether it actually results in the removal of Hamas is an entirely separate question. The last time Israel occupied territory outside of its current zone, I was actually, I think Gaza back in the early 2000s and disengagement then was controversial. Yeah. But the general idea of it was something that was generally accepted as being necessary. In a lot of ways, Israel views its full-scale occupations of both the West Bank and Gaza in the same way that America currently views the Iraq war. There's definitely appetite for an invasion of it. And I think if you asked the average Israeli on the street, do you want to get rid of Hamas? The answer would be yes. But whether or not Israel is willing to occupy it for the, because it will take months of constant, if not years, even though it's a small territory, it is very densely populated and there are a lot of Hamas militants and fighters. I don't know if Israel is going to be willing three months, six months, a year from now to continue fighting and fighting intensely, fighting fiercely to root out Hamas. And even if they do, there's going to be Hamas militants in or fighters, at least the elite, who are going to get to the Hezbollah controlled territory in Lebanon, who are going to leave for Qatar, who are going to leave for Iran. And I don't see how Israel expects to eliminate those. I I think the most likely outcome of this is that Israel invades the Gaza Strip. An enormous number of people die because the fighting will be inside of Gaza, mostly Palestinians, but a lot of Israelis are going to get killed by rocket attacks and a lot of Israeli soldiers are going to get killed. And the most likely outcome, frankly, is either some new agreement is made, which no one likes at all, which will result in more fighting down the road, which leaves Hamas in control, but weakened somehow, or Hamas is technically removed, but there's no appetite in Gaza for Fatah control, which is the only other significant extant Palestinian authority. So the most likely outcome is someone like Islamic Jihad or some other organization takes control or a group of them take control to fill the power vacuum. I don't see a world where this ends up with Gaza obtaining a government better, less corrupt, less ideological than they currently have now. Yeah. And like you were saying, it's going to be really hard to kind of root out Hamas on Israel's part because there's always, I mean, you can take out the people for lack of a better term, but there is always going to be sentiments like that. And there'll always be new people to kind of create, even if it's not Hamas, other organizations that are similar to Hamas or maybe have the same ideology as Hamas. So that's something that is almost an impossible question to answer. Um, and as far as the Gaza Strip goes, there's been a lot of talk that after the conflict is over, whenever that may be, that the Gaza Strip is going to go back to the Palestinian Authority or that people have said that it's going to go back to Egypt, but Egypt doesn't want it. No. And so that's that's not probable at all. But one thing is clear. It's very unclear. <laughs> the whole situation is very unclear. It makes it so hard to 
really even begin to discuss and think about the situation. Last question here. Yeah. Reconciliation between Palestinians and Israelis. Is this possible? My prediction is that it'll take years, possibly decades. I think definitely decades. And I think I think we're still at the point where reconciliation is an if and not a when. Assuming an enormous rate of economic development, assuming favorable policies from Israel, assuming that Islamic militantism doesn't continue to exist in Gaza, assuming that somehow corruption is reduced in Fatah and it becomes an effective organization, assuming Israel adopts favorable policies in the West Bank, which allows economic development, assuming all of that, in other words, assuming that a number of players in the region make decisions that they have historically not been making, I think it would still take decades before you get reconciliation. I mean, this is something that this is a conflict which exists at the basic root of the national identities of the Palestinians and the Israelis. It is at the core of everything that's been going on for the last 90 years. It's been existing since before either of these were states. It's been coexisting and happening under two colonial nations, under two colonial overseers, first the Ottomans and then the British, before they even gained independence to the extent that either have gained independence. Reconciliation is possible. Anything is ultimately possible. But this is one of the most intractable conflicts in the world for a reason. I think the big thing that no one talks about when discussing why it keeps going consistently is that Palestinians feel as though they have nothing to lose. I think in Gaza, which is absolutely impoverished, the phrase open air refugee camp has been used a lot. It's not entirely accurate, but it is is not inaccurate. It's not untrue. There's not a lot of appetite for cooperating and being nice when you don't have anything to gain from doing so. Or at least it doesn't seem like you have anything to gain from doing so, and there's very little to gain from fighting. And the West Bank, theoretically, the West Bank could be developing much more rapidly than it is. I mean, it has easy trade and communications with the most developed economy in the Middle East. But the division of it into dozens of different sections and the absolute incompetence and corruption of Fatah means that nothing's happened. Yeah, that's a very good point that you're making. And I myself hadn't even thought about that point. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, The last point that I think is important to make here is that Hamas and Palestinians don't always agree. And I would dare say most of the time don't agree. There's a portion of the Palestinian population that does agree with the actions of Hamas. There's a, por- there's a portion and a pretty significant one of Palestinians that don't agree with the actions of Hamas. So as kind of um, a last little bit, I think it's important to distinguish that fact that they're not the same groups of people. They're two separate groups, and it's important to understand that not all Palestinians agree with those actions that Hamas are taking is taking. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really, really appreciate it. And just to reiterate, our hearts go out 
to everyone suffering from the current conflict. We hope that people can try to heal from the hurt that's been going on. And we cross our fingers and hope and pray for a quick, peaceful end to the violence, the killings, and the conflict. Please join in with us next week where we'll be discussing the shooting that just happened in Brussels. Thanks for listening.